Welcome to the Pioneering Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, where we explore cutting-edge ideas with the potential to build a culture of health. Find us on iTunes or SoundCloud, and join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag RWJFpodcast. I'm your host, Lori Melliker, a director at the Foundation. Now, I've mentioned before that I live in New York City and I commute to the Foundation. And yesterday, as most days, I went to Penn Station to catch the 712 Trenton local train to Princeton Junction. Now, I only had a few minutes before my train was scheduled to depart, so I decided to squeeze in a coffee purchase. I saw that Zero's Bread had a really short line, and so I headed over there. I stood in line behind one guy, and as he made his order, my heart just sank. This guy was ordering three bagels toasted with cream cheese, not at all a quick order. So as soon as his words come out of his mouth, I start getting that agitated feeling that those of you who have to catch a train or a subway are familiar with. Do I have time to get this coffee? I really want this coffee, but should I just abandon this and go catch my train? And then this frustration really turned to agitation because, you know, actually he was in the wrong line. He was in the line for a coffee and for quick pastries. There was another line around the corner where you can go order the things that take a lot more time. So I look around, and to make it worse, nobody else seems at all perturbed by this person who isn't following the rules. In fact, the woman who worked at Zeros was being really nice and friendly to this guy. She called him honey and smiling. She told him if he wanted to, next time he could use the line on the other side, and she handed him his change. And then she turned and she smiled at me. And because it is physically impossible not to, I smiled back. And right then and there, my morning just changed. As she handed me my coffee, she told me to have a great day, And because of her kindness to me and also to that man, I began to do just that. I smiled at the people I passed as I went to my seat on the train. On board, I looked up from my computer to smile at the conductor when she took my ticket, and she smiled back, and then she smiled at the person behind me on the train. And I tweeted that day that the smiles that that woman in Zero shared with me and the other commuters that she served that day sent kindness and goodwill up and down the eastern seaboard. In today's episode, you'll hear a lot about sharing. Our guests talk about sharing in health and healthcare delivery and research. You'll hear about sharing in medical education. We'll talk about the concept of sharing personal health data for the greater good. And we'll talk about the sharing economy. Rachel Botsman describes the theory of the sharing economy in her book, What's Mine is Yours, How Collaborative Consumption is Changing the Way We Live. Now, if collaborative consumption is a new term to you, the companies Airbnb and Lyft are likely not. Rachel visited us at the foundation last year and sat down with my colleague, Hilary Heishman, to discuss what those of us in health and healthcare might learn from companies like these. How could we be sharing resources to improve our well-being? Let's listen to their conversation. The way I think of the collaborative economy is about taking the untapped value of underutilized assets. And those assets can be skills, they can be spaces, they can be stuff, they can be utilities, they can be human interests. And putting those assets into collaborative models and marketplaces in ways that generate empowerment, access and efficiency. So in financial services, You've got examples like crowdfunding platforms like Kickstarter, peer-to-peer lending platforms like Zopa. We're just starting to see peer-to-peer insurance, so friend insurance in Germany is a good example. 
in transportation is one of the fastest growing sectors. You've got everything from things like Zipcar to bike sharing systems to new taxi operators like Lyft, mm. open ride sharing platforms like Blah Blah Car, hospitality and travel. Airbnb is sort of the poster child, but there's many other players out there. So those are a really interesting array of examples. And I wonder if you could start to talk a bit about how it applies to something near and dear to us the idea of better health and better health care. So even though the examples look different on the surface, if you look at some of the principles that stitch them together, things like trust between strangers and how trust can be this new social glue in community, you think of concepts like idling capacity, so this wasted value in assets, you can start to see how it can be applied to reimagining health within society, whether that's reimagining the relationship between health professionals and patients, whether that's reimagining broader healthcare services and support services for care of the elderly, care of children. So much of healthcare suffers from the problem of layers of redundancy and people and processes which make it unnecessarily complex for the person who actually needs them. So the core principles can be applied to many different needs across health. And can you give a few specific examples that are already going that are related to health or health care? I know that you've said that this is largely an open frontier mm. available for lots of innovating, but there are a few examples already. Yeah, I mean, I am surprised by the lack of examples in this space because it's such a fertile ground. But you do see the early examples that are emerging are definitely where there is a immediate need for some kind of care, so whether that is mm -hmm. elderly care, disability, child care, and reimagining that relationship with the provider. So Silver Troopers in the UK, Southwark Circle, The Good Gym, Care Seekers, these are all examples where people are disintermediating the traditional processes to create a more direct, meaningful match. And I've heard you mention Landshare, could you describe that example? So Landshare is one of those examples where it's like a garden dating agency and matches people with space for food to grow with people who want to grow food. But then the other thing I love that they throw in the mix is people with the knowledge to grow food, which is often older generations. They have the time and knowledge and skills to offer this. So you see these really beautiful ecosystems of micro-communities emerging where thousands of tens of thousands of people all across the UK are not just growing their own food, but they're sharing in the experience. And then you see these byproducts emerge where they start cooking for each other and sharing meals for each other and support systems emerge. Because when they actually start to know their neighbors and interact with them, and food is such a common thing to bring people together, they find a support system within that community that would otherwise be hidden. And that's, I think, the real power of this, is that often the asset that you start with, the asset people think has value, mm -hmm. it's the hidden asset, the support systems that exist within neighborhoods and communities that starts to emerge. Really interesting. So you've given us an array of examples that are more in the private sector. Mm -hmm. Can you also share some examples that are about how this can play out in the social sector, whether it's with government, with foundations, with nonprofits? How is the social sector tapping into the collaborative economy? So again, it's early days. 
some of the ways that I've seen it being applied that have traction is emergency response and resilience planning. So the White House do in fact have a team that are focused on, they've now got 10 startups in this space reimagining resilience planning. So just to give you an example of that, TaskRabbit, which on the surface is a marketplace where people post errands they need doing and then people offer to run those errands, has become an on-demand switch to volunteering during times of crisis. So during Hurricane Sandy, they could switch that platform within an hour and not just mobilize volunteers, but mobilize volunteers with the skills that they need because they pre-vet those people. They know who those people are, what they can offer and where they're located and whether they're available. And it's those kinds of solutions I think are really exciting because it shows this opportunity to identify what people genuinely have to offer and want to offer and then where you need something really quickly and then you can create these matching systems. I've heard you suggest that what opens the door for the collaborative economy is these five drivers for disruptions, the complex experiences, waste, broken trust, redundant intermediaries, and limited access. And they are all definitely at play within our systems of health and healthcare. So I wonder what it'll take for more collaborative innovation in the health sector. What you see is innovation can happen around one of these opportunity areas or it can be a fusion of things. So complex experience and redundant intermediaries you commonly see fused together mm -hmm. because one is a cause of the other. So I think what it needs to be honest is, is like any other, it needs visible projects, it needs champions that really understand this space and are saying let's apply this to healthcare in a really big way. And I'm convinced it's a massive opportunity because the venture capitalists are starting to say, how do we get beyond health apps and the Internet of Things? But very few are saying, we funded Lyft with $500 million. Could you take the same principle to transportation and apply it to health within a community? Mm -hmm. So all I think is needed is for people to visibly understand how these ideas can be applied with a few champion projects and individuals. So... I'm going to go through a few different ideas from the world of health based on those drivers that they seem to me uh, and to a lot of my colleagues that they might be ripe for innovation. And so these three ideas that might be ripe for innovation are excess food, unused gym memberships, and caregiving. So do these sound like areas or issues or problems that are ripe for innovation? And then what others related to health can you think of that you'd add to that list? I think the unused gym membership is brilliant. It makes me think of FON. So do you know what FON is? No. So FON um, was set up, it was based on a similar insight that people have excess capacity in their mobile and internet broadbands. Mm -hmm. And that if you give that excess capacity to the FON network, you can have access to FON memberships all around the world. And there's now 10 million members that are part of FON, so it's in some way the largest internet membership club. So I can see it working in two ways, where people could offer the excess capacity in their gym membership and it could become a form of donation that you give access to people who otherwise wouldn't use that gym. But there's also the self-interest in how could it actually give them access to other gyms when they travel all around the world. So you can totally see that one. And do any other examples like that, of issues or problems that could be tackled with this, come to mind for you? So where I was thinking, I think there's a massive opportunity for retired health professionals where 
they have capacity in their life to apply those skills and interests back into community in really interesting ways. And it seems far-fetched, but when you talk to a lot of Lyft drivers, mm -hmm. many of them used to be full-time taxi drivers, and now oh. they're retirees that they want to drive for 10 hours a week. So how you take the incredible capacity and skills and interests and experience that exists in retired health professionals, especially when some of these health professionals may retire for 30 years, and apply that back in society becomes really interesting to me. I think it's interesting to think about where you have excess capacity that is like a physical thing, like a car, versus where you have excess capacity that is a skill set in a human being, and time, a skill set with time, and that both of these apply in the collaborative economy. Exactly, and, and just another idea on that, I mean, my dream scenario would be, what would be the Uber for care? If you could imagine Uber, they won't just be in transportation, they'll be in all different on-demand systems. So if you could imagine an Uber system where you weren't just apply it to one segment but you had all these on-demand health services that could reach this uh, wide spectrum of needs that and you could almost slide it so you know I need elderly care, I need childcare support, I need disability support. This is what these entrepreneurs do really well is they're not frightened of these ecosystems that meet many interconnected needs and that's the opportunity for innovation is rather than solve one problem build this community and technology platform that can solve multiple needs problems. That makes so much sense. So one of the themes that seems to really come out through these examples and through your descriptions is this idea of an evolving sense of trust, moving away from institutions and more towards individuals and their interactions. And that's often doing away with an intermediary. So why do you suspect this shift is happening these days? What could it mean for those of us who work within health? where the trust between the individual and institution is often paramount, actually, in health. Well, I think you see two things going on simultaneously. So the first is collapse in trust in one side. So if you think of the 20th century, it was an industrialized age where big companies, big institutions, we trusted them to do the right thing. They told us mm -hmm. what goods and services that we could use, and it was a very transactional relationship it was one way and that's what's exploded is that people expect in many of areas of their lives for these two-way relationships they don't want these cold transactions and then the flip side of that is that we see the rise of peer trust we see the rise of people trusting individuals more than they trust traditional companies as to why that happens it is so tied to technology so people are far more fluid in the way that they form relationships and they are used to forming connections really quickly so this notion of trust having to be built up over time is something that's changing really fast but the other thing I think is really interesting is the resurgence of old ideals and mm -hmm. whether that's the rise in crafts mm -hmm. and oh, yeah. making stuff the interest in growing your own food there is this real sense of, yes, we are hyper-individual and we are disconnected in many ways, but there is an innate sense of community and desire for community that you're seeing rising up in this generation. And some of the research shows that it's just a backlash against consumerism and, and sort of the boomers and the Gen Xs that they built this hyper-individualistic culture. An easy way to describe it is this shift from a culture of me to a culture of we, where people were actually really hungry for these new networks of trust in their lives. 
And how do you think that's affected by the way people interact in the virtual digital space these days? The way people interact digitally, it is about these fluid connections. It is about being able to get a real sense of who that person is in the digital world and being able to verify that person is the same person in the real world. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting is that we're still in this age where the self we project digitally is an edited self. And what I think will happen in the next days is that we'll get a much more holistic picture of who that person really is and it will have context and it will have behaviours and so this is why I think this trust evolution is really in its nascent stages that when we can really get a sense of who that individual is, how they behave in different contexts, who they know that I know, what other people think of them, it will completely transform the way we find people and interact with people. So is there any, what are things that organizations like foundations or nonprofits or government, for example, might be able to do to encourage that sort of right-sized examples of collaborative consumption and ones that are especially well-suited to target, um, you know, populations that, you know, have access to less resources? Well, I have so many ideas on this, but just to give you sort of a running list, the first is taking entrepreneurs who are five, six years in, they're, they're a little bit tired of building their business, but they're, they're not looking for a sabbatical, they're, they're looking to take everything they've learned and apply it in a really different context. Um, giving those entrepreneurs a home, almost like the startup accelerator programs, really apply to public issues. Is I, I have no idea why no one's done that, because the entrepreneurs I know they would go. So it's kind of like an academic sabbatical but it's like you have so much wisdom and insight into this marketplace if you could apply it to a public issue we could get these incredible new sources of energy and creativity so that would be the first one the second is spotting so there's brilliant examples that exist in other parts of the world that are hyper local and mm -hmm. how you don't reinvent the wheel but you take it and you find the local and the cultural application in many different so i see you know, in the same way like P&G created Connect and Develop to spot all these ideas in different parts of the world, how could you create some kind of Connect and Develop program where you were spotting things that could be replicated with very little adaptation? And then the third is, and this is where I think it requires sort of a fusion of money from different places, this, that you try to come up with big hybrid solutions that no um, corporate entity could ever develop because of private interests and you bring together really different sources of money and really different parties of interest and you come up with these hybrid solutions that suddenly solve very complex problems just because of this hybrid thinking. Also you talk about this so much growing uh, up from grassroots. Is there anything, so if what we're engaging with is a community, a geographic area as opposed to the entrepreneurs or the doers and creators, mm. is there anything that sets a community up better to innovate in this way for their community? Yeah, it's also um, that question sort of catalyzed another thought where the super users in these communities, mm -hmm. no one's tapping into them. The like super users. Super, so people who like the super hosts on Airbnb, they then go on to become local tour guides. And mm -hmm. you know, I've met some that have actually started craft marketplaces from their lofts, so they figure out that they've got all these people coming through their place, that so they can sell things that their community are making. These super users offer insights in terms of 
how to build community and how they're empowered in, in ways that people aren't tapping into. And points of connection, it seems. Exactly, and they, they understand how the initial form of exchange is not what forms the community. Mm-hmm. We'll end it there, but if you'd like to hear more from Rachel, check out her TED Talks, which have been viewed over two million times, and tell us how you think the collaborative model might be applied to improve well-being. Maybe we could turn a good mood into a community resource? It made me think of Smilecatcher, a game that Niaja Favre created over at the MIT Media Lab. We mentioned it in the last episode when we talked to Roz Picard about the Media Lab's efforts to build an internal culture of health that we hope will infuse health as a consideration in all design. Smilecatcher uses Google Glass to make a game out of getting other people to smile with the goal of promoting overall well-being. I was recently at South by Southwest the annual music, film, and interactive festival down in Austin, Texas. One of my favorite sessions was about agile approaches to cracking urban challenges. The panelists talked about applying what we know about agile software programming and lean startup methods to accelerate improvements to city life. Eric Heckler, director of the Designing Health Lab at Arizona State University and a grantee of ours, is asking similar questions. Only instead of applying these methods to urban planning, he's applying them to science. Working with partners, Eric is exploring whether a more informal, iterative approach to the research process can speed the development of effective behavioral interventions. In other words, could agile science help more of us adopt healthier behaviors faster? Eric recently spoke to my colleague Paul Torini by phone. Here's their conversation. So thanks for joining us, Eric. Thank you for having me. So where did this idea come from? I think in many ways this started when I was a postdoc at Stanford. And in particular, when I was at Stanford, I really started to get more connected with both the design school, the D school there, and also I got more and more interested in human-computer interaction, the subfield of computer science, where they really take advantage of the idea of design thinking and iterative development. And it really got me questioning the methods and process we use for developing behavioral intervention. And so what I started then thinking through is, well, why are they doing what they're doing? What advantages do they have? And what are we missing from that process? And so eventually, through this process, I started really thinking, the first thing that I really started thinking about was, I think maybe what we're being reinforced to do as scientists isn't actually matching the problem that we're working on. It felt like we're being reinforced through publications and grants to, in many ways, be very insular, tell insights and stories just to other academics and live in these little academic bubbles and being reinforced by academic bubbles. But I very much, even though I didn't know the phrase culture of health at the time, I think I very much lived that. I want to make a real-world impact. And I was increasingly feeling like this design thinking, I think, actually could really help make a real-world impact on behavioral interventions. And so then I started thinking, if that's true, 
well, then what do we need to do to change this? And maybe are there different values propositions? So then I got inspired. I looked into something called the Agile Software Manifesto. So if you go to agilemanifesto.org, you can read it. But basically what the Agile Manifesto sets up is value propositions on how you can do software development in a more, quote, agile way. And I won't get into the details on it, but it's interesting because it's an outcropping, a logical outcropping from design work where, in essence, there's a strong emphasis on rapid iteration and doing these what they call sprints where you come up with your smallest little question that you can ask and then run a little sprint that takes a week, two weeks, a month, if you will, depending on which agile method you're using. And then you're always bringing it back to the customer. And you're, again, just like in basic science, you're bringing it back to observation. You're always bringing your little question back to the customer to know if you got it right. That sounded really interesting to me, and that made a lot of sense. It's, it was breaking down a very complicated process of building something that works in the real world of software and making it into very small, actionable steps and constantly allowing observation to be the guidance of truth. I was like, well, that sounds pretty much in the spirit of science to me. And so then I started thinking, well, then how do we start reinforcing that? And since then, I first developed these value structures, which I presented in 2011 at a Stanford at B.J. Fogg's Mobile Health Conference. And from there, I've just been iterating on this, the values and the propositions, and, and in particular, what are the, how do we really incentivize real-world science, or what I've been now calling Agile science. So will you talk a little more about what the problem that Agile science is trying to solve? Sure. The main problem, there's many problems that are involved with trying to help people live healthier lives through behavior change. And I think a core issue that we're trying to resolve with Agile science is trying to figure out how do we make our methods and processes really match up to that complexity. Now you think about the iPhone only came out in 2007. So it's only been seven years, but it's had a monumental shift. Smartphones in particular have had a monumental shift in how we think about what is possible for behavior change. How do we develop methods and processes that can keep pace with that, but also that can take advantage of these new technologies in ways that really allow us to work in a more collective fashion. And so to me, the problem really is this idea of how do we speed our, the pace of our work such that it matches the complexity of health and behavior change. For years and years and years, we have used the scientific method to explore interventions determine what works and what doesn't work. And it's been slow, but it's been rigorous and thorough, and that's helped us move forward. Why can't we, why shouldn't we stay with the traditional approach? I think the core issue is actually not so much the fundamentals of science. I mean, what is the fundamentals of science? It's first putting observation over first truths, think Galileo, when he said the Earth isn't at the center of the universe. That was putting observation over what everyone knew to be true, even though we now know that wasn't true. So one, putting observation over truth. Two, manipulating, creating some way of influencing the thing that you want to study such that you can see an outcome. This is where interventions would come in. But again, even thinking about a biological process or a chemical reaction where you put one reagent with another and you see the response. And then the third part of science is thinking through how do you control for the extraneous other factors that can cause that outcome. So you take that into account. 
So again, putting observation above theory only, allowing, taking advantage of being able to manipulate to draw causal inferences, and then controlling the other factors. I would never say that I want to try to reduce the use of those three strategies. I think, though, the core issue, particularly when you think about behavior, is that we've developed methods and tools that make sense for trying to achieve those goals. One of those being, for example, randomization, particularly a randomized controlled trial for making a decision. The issue, though, with a randomized controlled trial is that it asks a very specific type of question, which is, does this intervention package, which usually has lots and lots of components, think the Diabetes Prevention Program, which is a 16-session weight loss intervention, does this package produce some desired outcome? And again, I'm not even questioning that a randomized controlled trial is a very good way of asking that question, but there are many other questions that can be answered, particularly about behavior, that are largely ignored in a randomized controlled trial methodology, particularly if we hold it up as the gold standard. So, for example, what is the right dosage for a given intervention? That can partially be answered with randomized controlled trials, but it starts getting tenuous. What are the decisions that we need to be making, particularly for a person within time? How do we personalize intervention ideas? How do we design systems so that they're usable and something that people really enjoy using? Those are the sorts of questions that are not really as well articulated, and there's many more, within our current behavioral science, in particular, methodology. So one of the things I want to try to figure out with agile science is think through how do we really tackle that? How can we take advantage of the same basic process using observation, manipulating, and then controlling for extraneous factors, but flip that and think through what are the really the most important core questions that we need to be answering about behavior now to kind of move that forward? So there's a whole infrastructure that's grown up around our traditional approach to science. Do you need an infrastructure to conduct agile science? Yes. So I think in particular that we need a new foundation on how we can make our work more agile. And so what that might look like would be, in my opinion, some key things to think through is, well, what are the ways that we really contribute to science and scientific knowledge? Right now, what is a publication? A publication is sort of our, as a scientist, that is our bread and butter. You know, that's the stuff that we get credit for. That's what helps us get tenure and promotion. That's what helps us get grants. And so in many ways, it provides us as a foundation of credit for what we do. But a publication is, in many ways, a very limited way to share information because it's designed with the idea, in essence, of sharing an insight, particularly a generalizable insight. I mean, think about what is an introduction and discussion, but really setting up the context for the work and then discussing the limitations and next steps on how to make this more generalizable, right? But another way to contribute to science might be more about building tools and resources that people can use immediately. So how do we build a research enterprise and infrastructure that can really incentivize people to share those small learnings, to share those tools, to share the best measures, such that we can quickly take, and to give an, a more concrete example of this, think about the Internet. There's a really interesting thing to the Internet on how it was created. In every web browser, there's an option to basically inspect elements. And what that allows you to do is basically inspect the source code. You can see exactly how someone built something and take it and reuse it. Science would do, I think, much better if we could take on um, that similar approach of allowing people to basically inspect the elements, not just re 
rehash what might have happened through the method section, but literally just take someone else's work, tweak it for your own question, your own context, and then use it again so that we're not constantly reinventing the wheel on these basic foundational constructs and concepts we're building on. How do we reinforce making that happen, I think, is a key strategy or thing to think about from a research enterprise standpoint. So Agile Science is an idea. You've got some pretty interesting partners and other relationships that you're working to test this idea. How will you know whether it's a success or a failure? I think... That is still an open question, to be frank, but I think what we're trying to strive for is partially articulating what are those – I think it's less about actually the very specific scientific questions in terms of behavior, and I think it more gets into understanding agile science will be a success if we can develop a culture around science that really is better facilitating this rapid collective sharing and knowledge generation. The way we can know if agile science is working is if we are moving the needle towards collective scientific action. Talk about the outputs of agile science and how that might contribute to building a culture of health. Sure. Right. A very concrete outcome of agile science should be making better behavioral interventions, ones that will get people more physically active faster and can reach a broader segment of the community such that we really allow people to make the choice of being healthy. So that will be a key part of facilitating culture health. I think another part, though, is also there's a lot of discussion within health promotion worlds on things like community-based participatory research or patient-centered outcomes research. So I think another concrete outcome for this is trying to make a place where those voices can be heard and actually integrated into the scientific process. How can we make it easy enough for someone to literally build their own behavioral intervention, take some scientist idea on goal setting, for example, and then say, well, that's mostly right, but I'm going to tweak this and this, and now this is perfect for me. That would be a really interesting outcome because we're basically allowing the collective action, but we're also allowing people to actually enable them to own their own health and personalize it eventually through making this process simple enough to really become active citizen scientists, if you will. That's a very exciting vision. Thank you. So, Eric, thanks for your time today and suffering through all my questions. I really appreciate the answers, and I hope our listeners enjoy them. Thank you, Paul. It truly was a pleasure. You can learn more about Eric's work and how to get involved at rwjf.org slash podcast. Continuing with the theme of collaboration, let's shift gears and look at some innovative work that's happening to make med school a more collaborative, compelling experience. My colleague Mike Painter heads up our work in this area. He's a senior program officer here at the Foundation, as well as a family physician. A few years ago, he was sitting at the TED conference when he heard Sal Khan of the Khan Academy describe something called the flipped classroom, and it captured his imagination. If you haven't heard of a flipped classroom before, in a nutshell, it flips the learning experience. You access the content of the lecture at home, online, and then you use classroom time to really apply that knowledge instead of just writing down everything your teacher says. Mike was inspired. What if this idea could be applied to medical education? He reached out to Sal and started exploring the possibilities. Since then, Mike's been exploring this terrain with Khan Academy, whose work the foundation has supported, as well as with other grantees. 
He's also spoken with some pre-med students about their experience in a flipped classroom pilot project. I'll let Mike take it from here. Hi, everybody. Mike Painter here for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Back in October of 2014, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation hosted a Google Hangout about the flipped classroom and what it might mean for medical education and for transforming health and healthcare. One of our guests was the Khan Academy's Rishi Desai. It's no longer this passive process where the teacher feeds you information and you kind of are an empty vassal getting filled. Rather, you have to challenge yourself to figure out what it is you want to learn. And the internet is there to offer a lot of helpful information. So I think the fact that these online tools exist is really just a manifestation of changing times and changing ways that folks are seeking out information. We also spoke to Shiv Gagliani, who took a leave of absence from the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine to launch Osmosis, a medical education technology and web platform, along with an app for medical students that aims to revolutionize the way they learn. So my co-founder Ryan Haynes and I are both medical students at Johns Hopkins, and during our first semester in 2011, we realized that the technologies that our friends, your future doctors, are using to socialize and watch TV, things like Facebook and Netflix, are managed by more sophisticated algorithms and more intuitive user interfaces than the tools we're using to learn medicine. And that scared us. Finally, we were joined by Dr. Charles Prober of the Stanford School of Medicine, along with Jennifer DeCoste Lopez, a student there. Dr. Prober is a champion of reimagining medical education to improve the medical student experience. With our support, he has led an important collaboration of leading medical schools who are working to develop a first-ever soup-to-nuts online course for medical students. It's really, truly a stunning use of technology to promote human collaboration. When I think of medical education on behalf of our students, I think of their very strong desire to have it delivered as efficiently as possible. And efficient delivery, I think, can be augmented by or enhanced by using online strategies, being very purposeful in creating content that can be delivered again to the students at their own pace until uh, they feel comfortable with it. Uh, that efficient delivery also maximizes flexibility. So it's possible that students could learn at different rates and they then will progress during medical school based upon competencies, not based upon how many hours they sat in a particular seat in a lecture hall. We should not have 140 curricula because we have 140 medical schools. We should have closer to one curricula that all the students can feel comfortable that they're getting consistent content uh, that is consistent with other learners in the United States. And perhaps the most important part in my mind is also to make medical education compelling. The Cramfest for two years to learn a lot of medical factoids may not be particularly stimulating as they continue to want to be inspired to become the physicians they dream of being. So as much as possible, I believe, we have to make the content compelling during medical education. Part of making that content interesting is involving medical students and offering more creative ways of helping students visualize and learn information. Here's Jennifer DeCoste Lopez, that Stanford medical student who has been working with Dr. Prober and the other faculty on that project. Many of the interactive sessions will be based on patient cases, but we're also trying to mix it up and bring in other modalities that might engage students even more. For example, one of the sessions we recently worked on is sort of a two-part session where in the first part students will be working through a case based on a journal article where 
scientists and public health officials discover the cause of a new virus and trace it back to a camel with a runny nose. And in the second half of that session, students will actually have to have a debate with the theoretical audience about how to best treat a common infection in infants. So trying to bring in everything from mystery stories to making the students argue a point to the more traditional case studies and make that facilitator guide standardized so that people anywhere can pick it up and hopefully be inspired by it and really run with it. Here's Shiv Gagliani, the one who took a leave of absence from medical school to try to improve medical education with his company, Osmosis. Shiv is talking about the importance of collaboration, of harnessing the wisdom of the crowd. Osmosis is currently being used by over 15,000 medical students. And these are all busy medical students, so we realized that we had something there in terms of the crowdsourcing, where it isn't just one man or one woman teaching everyone. It has to be a diffusive process where people can teach each other. Because Dean Prober may have the best lecture on, um, on neonatal herpes, but my professor at Hopkins may have the best lecture on syphilis. And so they need to collaborate and create really good content that's engaging, as we mentioned, and deliver that in an effective way. Rishi Desai from the Khan Academy has more to say about tapping into knowledge beyond the walls of a given school. I think one of the most powerful things that we're all talking about is the fact that we are pooling the, the communal knowledge. No one is smarter than everyone. And so what we're seeing through Reddit and Wikipedia and other groups that are very large is that there is this powerful community knowledge and the way that we're trying to incentivize folks to tap into that is on our platform we offer points and badges for folks to answer other students' questions. And this has an important implication for medicine in particular because it changes our mindset about who should know what. And I think sometimes you'll have a pharmacist answering the question of a doctor. Sometimes someone in India is answering a question for someone in Japan. And so this international piece, the fact that I can do it on my mobile phone, the fact that I'm actually being not just asked to be a consumer, but I'm actually challenged to be a productive member of the community is a very important part of this. And it's actually probably one of the most interesting and exciting things that's coming up. Jennifer says they're hopeful that the consistency across schools will lead to valuable sharing among students across the country. If students are aware that they're getting similar content to people across schools, at this point it's so easy to reach out to someone across the country. For example, at Stanford, without any prompting, not part of any assignment, Students each year create really elaborate study guides through some platform that many people can share on, usually Google Docs. So by the end of the course, without it being part of any assignment, a really incredible amount of learning material has already been spontaneously created. And in our project, we actually are purposely not creating certain content. For example, we're not creating a study guide, we're not creating a bullet-pointed list of everything you should know, because we expect that that'll come organically from the students, and we think that students are the ones who will know best how to make that content, and that that in itself will be part of the learning process. And a really critical part of this flip is about those intangible skills, about learning them during the valuable classroom time. Here's Rishi talking a little bit about that. The factoids they just don't get used in my daily practice, to be brutally honest. I mean, what I'm doing every day is communicating information to patients and trying to convince them that this is one way to think about things and laying out all the options. I think what we're advocating for here is saying, look, if we can actually take a group of intelligent, motivated folks, and they have two years of medical school, let's figure out the best use of that time. Let's say that they need to understand the language of medicine. That's frankly probably the easier part. Let's teach that language in an effective way. Let's put it online. 
let's do question banks and you know, offer them interactions and articles and all sorts of intuitive pieces that, that will get that language across. But then let's use the in-person time to challenge folks, like Jennifer was saying, with debates. And let's say, look, you've had this scenario. Why don't you explain to this patient how you would think about this? And really taking all those skills that you learn in third and fourth year of medical school and front-loading that and saying, look, that is actually medical school. Medical school is practice, real practice with real people around real issues. And I think that's what the future of medicine then begins to look like because you can take this didactic piece out and do a great job online, then the offline piece becomes very empowered with time and resources to go ahead and actually do those intangibles, which really should be, I think, 100% of what they do. Recently, I also got to speak with two great pre-med students, Viviana Torres and Yodit Atzbeha, who participated in a pilot-flipped classroom Viviana and Yodit shared their experience of being in the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Summer Medical and Dental Education Program, or SMDEP, at Columbia University. They're specifically taking an organic chemistry class that used the flipped classroom model. Here's Yodit explaining what it looked like. So how the classes worked for organic chemistry was that we would watch Khan Academy videos pertaining to different topics that are organic chemistry professor wanted us to cover. Essentially, we would just learn the material outside of class and then come to class the next day and just strictly do problems. So we were pretty much just applying the knowledge that we already had. And here's Viviana. Sometimes you look at a certain problem so many times and it just doesn't click to you. And once you already have gone through various videos and know exactly the basic knowledge, you can go back to class and really ask questions and have a thorough discussion of why is this important and how does this work with that and so on. I personally thought the flipped classroom was an amazing idea. I never thought that, honestly, I would be able to ever teach myself such a complex concept such as organic chemistry. So with that flipped course, I was able to just work at my own pace. Because for me, I like to fully understand a concept before moving on because things don't really just automatically click for me. So being able to pause the videos and then go through them step by step and then return back to the video and play it was really helpful for me. I thought that was a really powerful statement that Yoda really thought that she would not be able to teach herself something as complex as organic chemistry. It's clear that this experience was pretty empowering. Instead of her just lecturing to us, it was a class full of people that already understood the material, and we were all pretty much collaborating with one another to look at the concepts in different angles. We were sharing ideas and information and had to visualize these different organic structures. The problems that she gave us were based on the videos we saw the night before, and she tried to give us hard and complex problems to see if we really understood the material, and I think that was really great because I believe that if you really understand the basic foundation of the concept, you could do any complex problem. And so giving us these complex problems really helped us feel like, yes, we understand what's going on. Everyone was raising their hands. They were participating and asking different questions and sharing information. People were motivated to watch those videos and participate. And on top of that, the videos were easy to watch. They weren't bland and boring and hard. They were very simple and understandable, which was very helpful. I'm pretty sure you've taken organic chemistry, and you know how important it is to 
use different colors to kind of see what is reacting with what, what molecule. And so the videos did a great job doing that, showing vivid colors and really step-by-step step showing what is going on and understanding what is going to be formed. So what was the verdict? I want to go back. You want to go back to organic chemistry. Wow. Right. <laughs> exactly. Powerful enough to alleviate the dreaded pain of organic chemistry. I think we have something here. And flipping the medical school classroom has other benefits. The availability of these high-quality lessons online has potential, too. It makes it possible for all sorts of people, including current health professionals, doctors, nurses, patients, and aspiring health workers, to stay up to speed with today's health knowledge. For example, there's great continuing medical education content on the Medscape website right now, and it's free for participating health professionals. I, in fact, use it, and it's terrific. And by improving access to knowledge, ultimately, we are improving the knowledge itself. I truly believe that. This new model of the flipped classroom has the power to transform medical education, and in doing so, it can transform the very people who will be tomorrow's health professionals, tomorrow's doctors and nurses. Ultimately, it's contributing to a smarter, more connected, and more collaborative medical community, one that's essential to building a true culture of health in the United States. Thanks so much for listening. If you have feedback, I hope you'll all go to rwjf.org slash podcast or connect directly with me on Twitter. My handle is at PaintMD. Thanks so much. To share your thoughts on these efforts to reimagine medical education, go to rwjf.org slash podcast or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag rwjfpodcast. We'd love to hear from current med students, professors, physicians, entrepreneurs, anyone with an opinion about how things currently work, how they need to change, and innovations that show promise. I have another story about Penn Station where I catch the train to work each day. A friend of mine has a similar commute and recently confessed that whenever it's raining, she goes to the lost and found to borrow a black umbrella. She just tells the person she lost an umbrella, a black umbrella, and then she just returns it before she goes home that night. But what about the things that maybe we'd like to share, but we lose, that we can't reclaim so easily from lost and found? Things like personal health data. All of which brings me to our final guest today. Gary Wolf is a contributing editor for Wired Magazine who co-founded Quantified Self Labs, an RWJF grantee that aims to help people get meaning out of their personal health data. Here's a personal essay from Gary, sharing his vision for building a culture of health. Someday, you'll have a question about yourself that impels you to take a close look at some evidence. It could be a question about your health, your diet, your sleep, how you're spending your time. Maybe you'll be figuring out how to handle the onset of a disease or the advent of a new opportunity or a physical challenge. Whatever the cause, you might want to think carefully about what's going on. So how about using the data you've been generating for months or years, using the devices, apps, and services that mostly in the background keep a record of your activities? Maybe you want to know something about your spending at the grocery store, what medicines you've taken, where you've driven your car. Data is useful for scientists, managers, and marketers who want to figure us out. So what about when we want to figure ourselves out. 
Well, when you go to access your data or look at it or share it with somebody who can help you understand it, you'll usually discover that you can't. Your data, both data that you may have been collecting for yourself for months or years and data that's been accumulating in the background during your use of an app or an online service, will be locked up by the creators of those apps and services and inaccessible to any further questions you want to ask it. You have no legal right to this data, nor is there even an informal ethical consensus among app makers and device manufacturers in favor of offering ordinary users access to their data. In many cases, commercial tools for self-tracking and self-measurement manifest an almost complete disinterest in access as demonstrated by a lack of data export capabilities, hidden or buried methods for obtaining access, and no mention of data access rights or opportunities in the terms of service and privacy policy. Seven years ago, I founded a users group for people interested in learning from their own data called the Quantified Self. Today, there are over 110 affiliated groups in more than 30 countries, and I see nearly every day how much benefit people get from self-tracking. Whether training for the Olympics or trying to lose 10 pounds, caring for themselves after chemotherapy, or trying to eat a bit better every day, it helps to see clearly where you've been, to zoom in on details, and to understand trends over time. Now that self-tracking and wearable technology has seen large-scale investment and broad consumer adoption, it's time to activate this spirit of discovery in everybody. But I've also seen how hard it can be to access data. Even data that was carefully hand-entered by a user into an app can be hard to export for use chasing down the answer to a new set of questions. From fitness bands to the Apple Watch, from DNA to the microbiome, the rise of wearables and what I call very personal computing creates an unprecedented opportunity for positive change in the way we live and think. Now is the time to work hard to ensure that the data we collect about ourselves using any kind of commercial, non-commercial, medical, or social service ought to be accessible in common formats using convenient protocols. It won't be easy. There are technical challenges to giving individual users the power to access their own data. Data is not simply a set of numerals. It has a structure, sometimes an elaborate structure, that's created in order to serve specific needs. Every access system will involve some decisions and compromises, but that's no excuse for making data access difficult, expensive, and obscure, as it too often is. Common good-faith effort to allow access would be immediately recognizable and a big improvement over current practice. We live in a time of increased access and transparency at all levels of society. Today, you don't have to be an academic to get access to medical literature. You don't have to live in a big city to join a diverse, expert community of people who care deeply about the topics and problems that interest you. You don't have to go to a hospital, clinic, or doctor's office to measure yourself accurately. So even in the face of access barriers, many people are already using quantified self-tools to improve their own health, whether health means improving daily well-being, recovering from injury, or valiantly managing chronic disease. I've seen people use data to solve real mysteries about themselves and their world, working on questions like, what triggers my asthma attacks? How can I lower my blood pressure? Is there a way to prevent me from regaining lost weight? 
How polluted is my neighborhood? The significance of these questions is highest to the person who asks them, and I believe this first person's significance is worthy of the very highest respect. However, the significance does not stop with the first person. When we have access for ourselves, we can choose to provide this access to others, initiating collaboration with peers, sharing data with our caregivers, collaborating with public health researchers, and advancing our own knowledge and skills so we can become a resource for the people around us. A new way of knowledge making, a new way of thinking, premised on openness, creativity, and self-efficacy is emerging from the pioneering uses of these new tools. Access to our own data, the data we generate, is crucial to building a culture of health where each of us has the best opportunity to live our healthiest lives. Obviously, access to data is not the final step, but without access, we can't even begin. So let's get started now. I'm Gary Wolf. Find me on Twitter at A-G-A-R-C-U-S and tell me what you think. And share your vision for building a culture of health at rwjf.org slash podcast or on Twitter at hashtag RWJF podcast. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Rishi Desai, Shiv Galglani, Charles Prober, Jennifer DeCoste-Lopez, Viviana Torres, Yoda Despaja, Rachel Botsman, Eric Heckler, and Gary Wolf for sharing their ideas. You can subscribe to RWJF's Pioneering Ideas podcast on iTunes, where you can also find past episodes. Join the discussion about the ideas in today's episode and find related links all at rwjf.org slash podcast or on Twitter at hashtag RWJF podcast. In our next episode, we'll talk with Stanford's Jeremy Balenson about the possibility of using virtual reality technology to teach empathy. We'll also hear from MacArthur Genius Award winner Ai Jin Pu about transforming how we as a society value the work of caregiving and supporting families. Until then, be well, and thanks for listening.